morning, Crosspoint. It is good to be with you this morning in your homes. Thanks for inviting us in. Um, I just want to remind you of something that uh, Travis mentioned last week, and uh, that is as we're going through this series called Pause, um, we want to get some uh, input from you, and so uh, we're, we kind of want to hear uh, things maybe, whether they're topics or maybe questions you have, uh, kind of right now, we'd like to kind of um, incorporate those into our, our current series and so if there's something that kind of is, is kind of on your radar, something that you've been thinking about, um, we'd love to hear uh, from you uh, about those things. And so one of the things you can do, you can, you can uh, look for a poll in our Instagram story today. Uh, you can comment on today's Facebook post. Uh, or if you prefer not to pub, uh, comment publicly uh, on Facebook, there's a page on our website uh, the host of your live stream chat will post a link, and that link will also be in this Friday's newsletter. Um, so uh, we want to excited to hear from you and, and kind of respond to those things. Uh, this morning, uh, we're going to be continuing our series called Pause, and uh, don't worry about this stuff sitting right here. Um, uh, that's to keep your attention because, uh, you know, I don't, you know, in your homes and stuff like that, maybe your kids are around, you know, something colorful to look at, and, and we'll get around to this uh, eventually. Um, but uh, I don't know if, if, if you all remember this, but uh, I have these really like kind of fuzzy, vague memories of, of uh, Mini Pearl. Um, I'm not really old enough to have been like watching things that Mini Pearl was on, but what I remember about Mini Pearl was she always wore hats that had a price tag on them. And, and, and here's the thing about life and, and really the, the world that we live in. Whether you see it or not, Everything in our world has a price tag. Uh, you know, everything costs something. It doesn't matter what it is. It can be something that's, that's a product. It can be something that is, that is uh, more even subjective than that. And so things like necessities. We know that necessities that we, that we need have a price tag on them. They cost something. Um, stuff we like and stuff that we like and stuff that we do, whether they're hobbies, creature comforts, uh, going on vacations, those things all cost something. Uh, even relationships. Relationships do cost something. And, and, and if you've ever been in a relationship with another person, had a relationship with some, someone, there are actual, there's a monetary value connected with that. Uh, and, and, and even in responsibilities, the responsibilities we have like family, community, even church, there is a, a monetary value on those things. Um, and if you say, well, no, no, there's not a monetary value on family. Well, have kids and see if, if it costs something. Uh, the reality is that, that, that even, even, even in the world that we live in today, a person's life has a correlating monetary value. It's been interesting uh, hearing the kind of discussion and, and conversation going back and forth about the, the whole kind of shutdown of, of society versus the economy. And one of the, one of the conversations that became really big even a couple weeks ago was how much is a person's life worth versus the economy? And that's not actually a new conversation. Uh, actually, there's, there's something called the value of a, of a, a statistical life, a VSL, um, which measures health, safety, and environment versus uh, the, the, the actual monetary value of a person's life. And then there's also another thing called value of quality adjusted life years, uh, which is, has to do with uh, really me medicine and, and medical procedures 
versus the value of one person's life. Those aren't new measurements. They're things that have been around for decades. And, and, and it's, it's, it's part of, uh, of society. It's part of every culture. And I was, I was reading to kind of look at things that maybe uh, we think don't have some kind of uh, monetary value with them. And so I found this, this, uh, this blog that said 103 things that you can do with a money-free weekend. And here's a few, I'm not going to go through obviously all 103 things, but there's a few things that it threw, threw out. One was listen to a podcast, which I guess you have to have something that you bought to listen to a podcast on. And have an internet provider to get the podcast. So I guess that's not really free of money. Uh, board games, play a board game. Well, you have to buy the board game. Uh, learn how to knit. I mean, you probably have to buy the yarn and the needles and things like that. Uh, take photos. Um, well, if you're going to take photos, you probably have to have a camera, and that probably costs something. And so it's interesting, even things that we think that don't maybe immediately cost, there's, there's a cost somewhere. And so this morning, what, what we want to kind of take a step back and pause about is, is that money is really the current that flows under everything we do and we experience. And this isn't necessarily a good or bad thing. It's not saying, well, it's bad that money is this current that flows under, under everything. It just, it just kind of is. That's the reality that we live with. It's, it's a thing that, that, that it's a commodity that, that we exchange. And I want you to know right now, as we talk about money this morning, this isn't kind of a, a, a guilt thing about how you do or don't use your money or a shame thing. The goal is, is not to feel good or bad about what you do with money. It's, it's to pause, take a step back, and consider what your relationship is with money and how that kind of flows out. And, 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 I, and the reason why this is important, um, there's probably lots of reasons why it's important, but two things that our culture teaches us about money. And the first thing that culture teaches us about money is this. Our culture predisposes us to live beyond our means. That's what our culture does. Our culture predisposes us to live beyond our means. And, and there's all kinds of examples of, of how that's true. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I was, I was watching TV the other day and, and a Ford commercial came on. And, and, you know, we see nowadays, we see all kinds of commercials for uh, businesses and organizations and, and pro, uh, those who produce products and things like that. They, they, they all kind of uh, are jumping on this and talking about how we're all in this together and what they're doing to help out. And it was interesting because uh, I was watching and there was this Ford commercial and they said, you know, we're, we're in this together and Ford wants to help you get a new car. And so they said they're, they're offering the six-month payment relief that you can defer payment th for three months and, you can, and that Ford will make payments for three months. Which sounds great. It sounds like I'm, you know, it sounds like I'm getting, getting more for, for, for less. But it's interesting because as you look at the actual uh, program, it, it says in small print that the customer is responsible, still responsible for all payments. <laughs> and, and so it's interesting that, that they say even if you're struggling right now, you can still get a new car. Even if maybe you can't pay for it now, We'll help you, and then later we'll collect. And so our culture, as, 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 as in large, 
predisposes us to live beyond our means. Second thing that our culture teaches us is our culture leads us to believe that we can obtain the ends we want without sacrifice. That we can get what we want and it won't cost us anything. We don't have to sacrifice anything. We can have all of the things that we feel are important to us and we can get there without having to make choices to sacrifice or costs that are, that are connected with us. And, and those two things primarily is exactly why we need to pause and make sure that we have a solid understanding about money. Because every person, whether you have it or don't have it, whether you have a lot of it or a little of it, every single person has a relationship with money. And so one of the first things we have to do is we kind of have to walk through and, and, and make sure we understand uh, the biblical theology of money and, and how, we, how the things maybe that we misunderstand and the things that, that we need to understand better. And there, there's, some, there's some things that I think uh, that even Christians believe that maybe they, they, they got wrong and, and, and got reinforced in a way that, that they kind of be, begin to believe some, some kind of myths about money, even in the church. And so some, some common myths, I think, that, that we kind of get to or we inadvertently or sometimes even intentionally get to in church is, is the first myth is this. If you seek first the kingdom of God, then God will give you everything you long for. Uh, that's not exactly what God says. Uh, and we'll come back to that. I want you to kind of put a pin in that, and we'll come back to that idea that if you seek the kingdom of God first, then he'll give you everything you want. Um, we'll come back to that. Uh, second, second myth that's out there that, that is pretty prevalent in the church is this, that money is the root of all evil. Therefore, it's wrong for Christians to focus on making money, which at, at best is a necessary evil. The reality is that when, when, when you see in Scripture the idea of money and the connection to evil, it's that the love of money, loving money, is, is actually what's described as the root of evil. And money is simply, as, as I said before, the primary means of exchange, and we actually need it to live and function. The focus of 1 Timothy 6.10, which is where Paul says that the love of money is the root of all evil, Paul is actually critiquing the nature and condition of my heart, not the nature and the condition of money. It's actually focused on, on the person, not the, not, the, not the thing. And so we have to be careful what we do there. And then the third, the third maybe common myth in church about money is, is since we are saved by grace through faith, God will not hold us responsible for what we do with our money. And, and again, there's a reality in Scripture that, that, that grace doesn't dismiss being responsible. We will all give an account to God for the things we have done with, with everything that he's allowed us to have, everything that he's given to us, including our money. And the reality is that grace is not a means to dismiss God's rule. That's not how it works, and, 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 and we can come across that sometimes. And, and so we need to understand that, again, there's, there's, there's a decent amount of errant thinking about our relationship with money and how that works. And that's why we want to pause and take a step back and make sure that we understand this in the right way. There's a professor uh, of Christian ethics at Wesleyan Theological Seminary. Her name's Dr. Sandra Wheeler. And uh, she, she, uh, she has written a number of things about 
um, Christian ethics and money and, and how money uh, affects uh, our decisions and those kinds of things. Um, but one of the things that she talks about is, is that oftentimes we, we like to grab a hold of one verse or a passage that we kind of favor and then we develop our theology from that. And we need to be careful because she says, by paying attention to the whole Bible, not just to a favorite passage or two, it will help us focus and clarify the conversation about money. And what she's done is, is she's actually gone through both the Old Testament and the New Testament from a Christian ethics standpoint, and she's developed four themes in the Old Testament and the New Testament that are pretty obvious and rampant about money in, in our lives and in, in our culture. And so in the Old Testament, she simplifies these four things. And these are the four themes that she sees with wealth and how the Old Testament treats it. One, wealth is seen as an occasion for idolatry. You see that throughout as God talks to Moses and God, God gives the, his law to Israel. That, that oftentimes wealth can be an occasion for idolatry, for being more important than God in a person's life. The second theme in the Old Testament she mentions is wealth as the fruit of injustice. You see throughout the Old Testament and you see it today that sometimes wealth can be used in a way to promote injustice. Those who have and those who don't and those who have do things that are unjust to those who don't. A third theme in the Old Testament she mentions is wealth as a sign of faithfulness. That, that God blessed Abraham in a in, a, in, a, in actually a practical financial way because of his faithfulness. That it, that, it, that it talks about that Solomon who asked God for wisdom and in his faithfulness, God gave him wealth as well. And so you see that happening in certain cases in the Old Testament. And then fourthly, the, 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 the last theme she mentions in the Old Testament is wealth is a reward for hard labor. That, that, that we, we receive payment and we, we become financially stable because we work hard, that hard work ethic. And then she moves on in the New Testament and has four things that are themes there. And so the first one is wealth is a stumbling block. You see throughout the New Testament, the writers, the gospel writers, and the, and the letter writers, you see them talking about oftentimes how wealth can be a stumbling block to surrender to Jesus. Second theme that she mentions in the New Testament is wealth as a competing object of devotion. That wealth can be a, 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 a competitor or, or money or the pursuit of it can be a competitor for our devotion that is supposed to be to Jesus. The third thing she mentions is wealth as a resource for human needs. That it is a resource to get our needs met that God provides us with. That it is a good thing, and it is, it is a good thing in the right context. And that it can not only meet our needs, but other people's needs, and bring a fulfillment that wasn't there without it. And then finally, the last thing she mentions in the New Testament is wealth as a system of economic injustice, which kind of correlates with the Old Testament theme as well. That, that you, that again, you saw the New Testament writers talk about how uh, James speaks of uh, when, when a poor person comes into your church, do you put him in the back and a rich person comes in and you put them in a seat of honor in the front? And, and so there's this wealth as a system of, of economic injustice and, and to continue to, to push that forward. And so, and so there's these big themes, which really what we learn from the big themes in both the Old and the New Testament 
is that sometimes wealth is a great benefit to people and sometimes it is a great challenge to people. And so, and so it, it really lands in a place where, where money is not necessarily good or bad. It's how it's used and how it, the, the, the priority it has in our lives. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 18. And uh, in Luke chapter 18, uh, Jesus has this conversation with, with this guy who comes up and, and asks Jesus, how, how do I attain the kingdom of heaven? And so in Luke chapter 18, uh, starting in verse 18, it says this, this rich young ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not commit murder, do not steal, do not bear fault witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said to Jesus, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And so it's interesting in this passage, which is, this is kind of a favorite passage among maybe people who, who kind of go on the side of, you know, the Bible is against having money. It's, a, it's against accumulating wealth. And there's a reality that, that in this passage, Jesus doesn't say that it's not possible for one who is wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says that wealth can provide a significant kind of difficulty if it resides in the wrong position in our lives. Because it's interesting because, because Jesus begins and he tells him, this man, he says, you know what? He goes to the law of God. He says he goes to the Ten Commandments, which he would have really been familiar with. And he says, this is what God calls you to do. And, and, and then when the, the, the young man answers and says, I've done those things. I'm on top of that. Jesus goes from God's universal expectation in the law to something personal. And he says, you still lack one thing. And that becomes a very personal nature with this, this rich young ruler. And what he's saying is, is you still lack something that's really significant. And there's a common pitfall associated with wealth in the Bible. And when we get the idea of what that pitfall is, if we just back up a few verses before Jesus' interaction with this rich young ruler, move back uh, from in Luke 18 to verse 15. It says, now they were bringing even infants to Jesus that he might touch him. This is when Jesus is there in a crowd and they're bringing these children. And he says, and when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Belongs the kingdom of God. It's the same question that the rich young ruler asked. He says, for such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Here's where this gives us some understanding of Jesus' conversation with the rich young ruler. This common pitfall, the one thing that he lacked wasn't that he had too much money 
or that there's a, 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 a blanket statement that Jesus says, you have to always give all your money away to the poor. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying, the thing that you're lacking is that this rich young ruler lacked an utter dependence on God for, for his life. That, that Jesus was focusing on trust and the condition of his heart. You see, children have, have an utter dependent on resources outside of their control. They're dependent on parents. They're dependent on a caregiver because they can't care for themselves. And what Jesus is saying is that when you have wealth, there is a temptation to place your dependence on wealth rather than Christ. And so when Jesus says it is very difficult for the rich to inherit the kingdom of God, what he's saying is the thing that you have to be careful of and watch out for is that you place your dependence on your money rather than your dependence on Jesus Christ, like a child. And so really what, what that Luke passage brings up to us, there's two questions that it brings up. One is, do I trust significantly in my own ability to take care of myself, or do I trust in God for my ultimate well-being? Do I trust significantly in my own ability to take care of myself, or do I trust in God for my ultimate well-being? That's what Jesus was asking this rich young ruler. And the second question that we can ask coming from this passage is this, what ways does God ask me to loosen my grip on my possessions for the kingdom of God? Is there something that God's asking you to do to loosen your grip on your possessions for the kingdom of God? Maybe there's something God wants you to use for his kingdom. Maybe not everything, but, but what are the things that maybe he is? You see, the biblical theology of, of wealth goes all the way back to Genesis. Like we talked at the beginning of the year in, those pattern, in the pattern series. God created everything. He called it good. And all things belong to him first, including all the things that we have, our possessions, our money, the money we work for, all of those things belong to God. And we are called to be good managers of what God, what is God's, and we will answer to him alone for the way we manage those things. That's the simple biblical theology of money. That, that it's... God's, and he shares with us, and we manage what he shares with us, and we'll be called to account for that. I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 6, and this is where we're going to kind of end this morning. Matthew chapter 6 is, is within the, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus was giving kind of kind of the, the, some of the, the most important things that Jesus wanted his disciples and those who followed him to know and understand. And it begins in Matthew chapter 5 and goes on through ver chapter 7. And, and here in chapter 6, the, the, the things that Jesus speaks about, the kind of flow of chapter 6 is he begins to talk about giving to the needy, caring for those who are in need, he then, he then walks through, and we call it the Lord's Prayer, but really it's a declared dependence on God. And, and then he, he talks about treasures in heaven or what we would talk, call really long-term investments. And then he, he talks about worrying about what we have and don't have. And really it's, I would call that disciplined anxiety. Our anxiety about stuff 
and how we have to discipline our anxiety about that and rather than, than having anxiety and trust that God cares for us and will meet our needs. And, and so Jesus goes through all this stuff and then he ends with this, this verse, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. And, and, and that's what I wanna touch on. But, but before I get there, one of the things that's so interesting that kind of comes into this whole issue of money and our relationship with it is a statement that Jesus makes in the Lord's Prayer. And he says, give us today, ask God to give today your daily bread and, 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 and trust him for that. And it's interesting because, because we, we have all, I, I've never really thought very deeply about that idea of asking God for daily bread because it's just something that, I don't know, doesn't maybe hit in, in at least my, my perception or my concept or my culture, our culture. But it's interesting, uh, a number of weeks ago, uh, Sherry and I were talking and um, I don't remember what day it was, but the day before, uh, she, had, she had told me, she said, you know, I, I'm realizing that, that, I, that, I, that I need to get a bicycle. I need to get a bicycle because it's, it's just easier on, on the body and all this to just kind of exercise and do stuff. And she goes, I just, and I don't have one and, I, and I, I'm realizing I need to get one. And so she was frustrated because we don't want to spend the money. And uh, the next day she was talking with a friend of hers and she made a comment to her friend and she said, and they were, I don't know what the conversation was, but she made a comment. She said, you know, I don't often pray about the small things in my life. And then go to later that day where she was supposed to meet another friend and um, they were gonna go and, and look at some things that, that this other friend had in, in, in a storage unit and uh, they were looking to, to see if there was things that, that uh, could be given away to people who are in need. And, and so Sherry and her friend went, went to the storage unit and they walked in. And when they walked in, there was, this, there was this really nice bike sitting there. And Sherry's friend said, hey, you know, I have this bike and I'm not gonna use it again. Would you want it? And, and it, was, it was this incredible thing where Sherry came home and she said to me, she said, I didn't even pray about it and yet God provided. And I talked about earlier that day how I don't pray about the little things. Asking for daily bread is, is not about our needs. It's about our God. And the miracle isn't that we have bread or a bike or money when just yesterday we had none, but that our high and holy God stoops low that he enters our space to provide for us. Asking for daily bread is about asking God into our daily lives, asking him to be made manifest in our needs to remind us that he loves us and provides for us and that he resources us and that we are dependent on him. That just kind of struck me. In, in asking God and the way he calls us to ask tells us a lot more about him than about our needs. Matthew chapter six again. I want you to look at the 33rd verse, Matthew six thirty-three. Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And, and as I said earlier, that's, that's, a, that's a verse that it's pretty easy to get mixed up with because we look at that and say, okay, so if I, if I, if I make Jesus first, I'll have everything I want. This is all about our relationship with, with wealth and with money and with resources. 
And, and notice what Jesus says. He says, seek first God's kingdom. There's, when you think about wanting something, when you think about wanting something, you really want it, it, it comes in not just an ask, but also it almost turns into a begging. And so Jesus shifts our attention from begging to seeking. You see, begging God lands us in a cold and disappointed place toward him when he doesn't come through or when we don't get what we want. See, begging decides what the ultimate good is for ourselves because that's the focus of begging. The thing is the focus of begging. Seeking is different because seeking, seeking God draws us nearer, forcing us to look at Jesus when we seek answers even when we don't get them. Seeking is more about the process than the object. See, seeking is actually a commitment to growth, whereas begging is a commitment to get what I want. And, and so, and so, so that's, that's kind of what, what, what Jesus begins is to say, seek the kingdom of God. It's actually not about what you're going to get. It's about how you are going to grow in the process. And so then it says, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. In other words, seek first becoming more like Jesus. And then he says, all these things will be added. What is he talking about that's going to be added? Well, it kind of goes back to how he's been talking throughout chapter 6. Remember I said at the beginning of chapter 6, he talks about generosity, giving to the needy. Generosity will be given to us. That he talks about a declared dependence on God, that, that we will be able to trust and have confidence in God if we seek his kingdom first. Then he goes on and he talks about the long-term investments, the treasures in heaven, that there will be reward. God will give us, add to us as we seek him first, a reward that is absolutely assured for us in heaven and provision on earth. And then he ends with this disciplined anxiety that, that our anxiety will be processed toward God if we are seeking him first. All these things will be added to us if we choose to prioritize rightly. And, and, and here's, here's what I want us to understand this morning, because I think it's so easy for us to miss the point that, that Jesus is making in, in Matthew 6.33. Because you see, our priority determines our capacity. When we prioritize seeking Jesus, his kingdom, his righteousness first, then God brings, he, he enlarges our capacity to be able to contain what he wants to give us. And so, this is, this, this bowl right here, this is, this is you, this is me, this is, this is what that represents. And inside of this bowl, all this stuff in here, this is, this is what are your, your wants. These are the things that, that we feel that we need. These are all the things that I want, that I'm pursuing, that I need, that, that, I, that I like, all of those things. These rocks out here, this, this would represent my surrender to Jesus. And uh, so here, here's me. He's maybe me or you. And here's all the stuff that I want, all the stuff that, that I feel is important. And here's my surrender to Jesus. So, so I, I put that in and, and that, that maybe kind of fits in there um, on top of all my stuff. Um, and then this rock is actually um, my process of actually becoming like Jesus. See, 
daily I have to surrender to Jesus, but, but there's then a process that comes after that that I have to be committed to, and, 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 and it's the process of becoming like Jesus, looking more like him, but that, that doesn't seem to fit super well, um, super well in, in what, what I have in there, but I don't know. And then, and then here, here, here this, this is actually then um, my spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines that, that I need to, that I know are important, like prayer and, and, and giving and, 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 and all of those things. And, and I don't know, that they, they kind of fit precariously on top because it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't totally fit in my life. But, but that's because there's, there's so many things that, that, that I have out of, out of line in my priority. And so when Jesus says, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added, he's saying that, that, that the priority that you place on things will determine your capacity. And so if I'm filling myself with all the things of my agenda and my pursuit, Jesus is not going to fit in my life. And so really what, what Jesus says, he flips this upside down in his economy, in his context, and he says, seek first to surrender your life daily every single morning to Jesus. And then he says, seek my righteousness. Make sure that your aim, your motivation in life is to become more like Jesus. And he says, I want you to have a vibrant prayer life. I want you to be generous. I want you to be kind. I want you to be compassionate. I want all of these things. And they go in there. And so that's seeking first God's kingdom and then all these things would be added. Spilled a little bit. But here's the reality. Is that when our priorities are aligned with God's priorities then God increases our capacity to become who he's called us to be. That's what, that's what this verse means. That's what seeking God's kingdom first does. As I close this morning, I wanna give you a couple practical things because of where we are today in, in our culture and our world around us. Um, there's probably two scenarios that people are in right now. One you're doing good and you have enough, or two, you're struggling because you've, you're unsure about what the future holds for you financially. <laughs> if, you're, if you're in a situation right now that things have gone wrong financially and that you're struggling, you're not sure how you're gonna make it and you're not sure when this all ends, if you're gonna have a business, if you're gonna have a job, you're not sure how you're gonna pay your bills, here's what I wanna encourage you with. One, you can expect doubt. You can expect and feel free to, to cry out to God and say, God, why? Why is this happening? And, and I've been faithful to you. I don't know why, what's going on. And it's okay to have that. But as you can expect doubt to seep into your life, welcome weakness. Welcome weakness. Because you see, weakness is, is a doorway to recognize our dependence and need for God to fill us with the things that we formerly put our faith in. And thirdly, remember God's promises. 
Remember that God meets us in the midst of our fear and our suffering and that God has a vision beyond today for your life and for your future. And hold on to that if you're struggling. Then there's that other category of people, people who maybe are saying, you know, I'm, I'm doing well, I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay, I still have my job, and, and really not a lot has changed for me. Here's a suggestion. You can take it or leave it, but here's a suggestion. Most people in our country are getting a stimulus check from the government to help with what's going on. Here's the reality. God provides for your needs and for our enjoyment. You are responsible to be discerning and use wisdom. And, and so here's, here's just some advice. Here's some, I think, biblically sound advice. If you're in a difficult or unsure place financially, please use that money to provide immediate needs for you and your family. That's discernment. But if your income isn't affected in a significant way, here's a suggestion, something to think about that you might want to consider to use that money for? If, if you get $1,200 from the government, what if you use $300 to pay down debt? What if you put $300 in savings? What if you thought about a local business that you know is struggling, that you like and care about, and you just gave them $300 to encourage that person that you appreciate and you're thinking of them? And then maybe the last $300 that remains to actually help someone struggling or provide support for needs. You could do this through the resources here at Crosspoint or somebody that you maybe know that is struggling. But what if you just break that into four $300 segments and put 300 to pay down debt, 300 into savings, 300 to, as a gift for a local business that you care about, and 300 to just help somebody? Maybe that's a thought to do, and maybe that's placing your relationship with money in a different perspective. God cares deeply about who we are and how we grow. God is all about filling us to make us more like Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you this morning and I thank you so much for the way you work in and through us, how you speak to us, and how you grow us. Father, I pray that, that we would truly be a people who seek you first and are ready to receive the things that you want to fill us with so that we can be better imagers of Jesus. God, help us to have a right relationship with money, that it wouldn't be too important or too unimportant in our lives. We love you, Jesus. In your name, amen.